0: following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good evening. Welcome in. We are going to go ahead and get started here this evening. Amen. Let's start with our scripture reading tonight, which is going to be in First Chronicles and uh, we'll be in the 19th chapter this time. We saw last time David's uh, administration on uh, further conquest of the land this evening. Hey, there's a familiar face. <laughs> Welcome back, brother. We uh, are in First Chronicles 19, and uh, this is just chronicling the, particularly the southern kingdom Of Israel. And so we read in verse 1 of chapter 19. It happened after this that Nahash, the king of the people of Ammon, died, and his son reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. So David sent messengers to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came to Hanan in the land of the people of Ammon to comfort him. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Did his servants not come to you to search and search and overthrow and to spy out the land? Therefore Hanun took David's servants, shaved them, and cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks and sent them away. Then some went and told David about the men, and he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, Hanan and the people of Ammon sent a thousand talents of silver to hire for themselves chariots and horsemen from Mesopotamia, from Syrian Maaka, and from Zobah. So they hired for themselves 32,000 32, chariots, with the king of Maakha and his people who came and encamped before Mediba. Also the people of Ammon gathered together from their cities and came to battle. Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array before the gate of the city, and the kings who had come were by themselves in the field. When Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in the battle array against the Syrians, And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, and they set themselves in battle array against the people of Ammon. Then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will help you. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. When the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai, his brother, and entered the city. So Joab went to Jerusalem. Now when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they sent messengers and brought the Syrians who were beyond the river. And Shophak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, came upon them, and set up in battle array against them. So when David had set up in battle array against the Syrians, they fought with him, and the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 7,000 charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians and killed Shofak, the commander of of the army. And when the servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with David and became his servants. So the Syrians were not willing to help the people of Ammon anymore. Well, don't think that everybody comes to you comes with ill intent, I guess, huh? They might be coming with a real intent to bring comfort and uh, and be a, a kind uh, person to you, but not always, of course. But in this case, people of Ammon misread David badly and uh, caused all kinds of trouble and loss of life when they did what they did to uh, reject David and his overture to them. First Chronicles 19. May God bless that reading of his word. We want to ask you to open your Bibles tonight, if you would, please, to the book of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel and Chapter 12. We've been, uh, as I was reviewing, looking back and uh, thinking, boy, we started uh, Matthew's Gospel around Christmas time, a little before last year, so we've been in it almost a year now on Sunday evenings and Wednesdays as I have had opportunity to speak where Matthew 12, to 37, the title of the message from Wednesday was Good Men and Evil Men. And uh, actually, we have a little bit longer to go yet in chapter 12 before we get to the parable section of the gospel. We saw that uh, the Lord was in a, a conflict with the Pharisees as they accused him of breaking the Sabbath. He taught that Man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for the benefit of man. And uh, he healed a a fellow on the Sabbath. They didn't like that. They plotted how they might destroy him. And uh, we we see the contrast between their approach to things and the Lord from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 42, where uh, it's predicted, prophesied, that uh, this one will come with the Spirit of God upon him. He will not be a quarreler or crying out in the streets, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. That was his character, and he certainly fulfilled that. They accused him then of uh, being demon-controlled or uh, satanically indwelt when he cast out a demon and healed a man who was blind and mute. And uh, so he taught them that a house that is divided cannot stand. We saw that and looked at that at quite some length. And then in the next segment of the uh, chapter, he calls them out for what is called the unpardonable sin or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, speaking against the Spirit of God. And that sin could not be forgiven. We looked at that in some detail. I was interested to see the title of a sermon by a well-known preacher just pop up on the computer Today, that was called the modern unpardonable sin. Or, no, it was not that. It was the modern blasphemy of the Spirit. And uh, a play on this. But as you know, we took the uh, view that the precise sin of the blasphemy of the Spirit or the unpardonable sin spoken of here cannot be replicated today because the circumstances are not present in this day and age. The Lord is not here working miracles by the power of the Spirit of God and uh, so we cannot make this exact sin. There are sins that have similar ultimate outcomes, uh, of apostasy and un, uh, hardened unbelief, but those, at least the unbelief side of that equation, can be solved uh, by turning away from sin and turning to Christ. Now, the Lord, in verses 33 to 37, explains that the Pharisees are demonstrating an evil internal heart he says in verse 33 either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad for a tree is known by its fruit Brood of vipers he calls them one of three times in the Gospel of Matthew that they are called that once by John twice by Jesus here and in Matthew 23 uh, I think it's 23 33 or somewhere along in there he calls them that again he says how can you being evil that's the divine estimation of their character that's God speaking, not me speaking, not Matthew, that's Jesus himself. speak. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. So we have two metaphors, if you will. The one metaphor of the treasure, which is really just like the store, the uh, the place the repository if you will it's a treasure is usually we think of it as a good thing right we go treasure hunting and it's a, exciting and it's good this treasure is, is a, either a good treasure or a bad treasure so maybe a better to say a storehouse or a store or a repository out of the good repository of his heart he's going to bring forth good things and a bad repository is going to bring forth bad things and He also uses the metaphor of the good and bad tree, which is a favorite of the Lord. It's very useful in an agrarian society where people paid a lot of attention to these sorts of things. There's some of us who pay very little attention to trees or agrarian things. All we know is we go to the store and we buy things in plastic packages and scan them and pay for them, and that's it. But these people lived and died by their plants and trees And so they knew that if a tree was reputed to be good, but it offered tasteless or awful uh, or corrupted fruit, then it was really not a good tree. No matter how good it looked, it was a bad tree. Uh, Carry on with verse 36. It says, "...but I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned." And that's where we come this evening to look at this topic. And for just a little bit here, uh, we'll consider judgment based on speech. Judgment based on speech. Now, there is a way that you could try, I suppose, to kind of massage this text to kind of make it impotent. What I mean by that is when you look at this, you 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 might tend to say, well, wait a minute. I'm going to be judged by my speech. I thought that judgment was not a concern for me. That Jesus paid for all my sins. That I am you know, certainly not going to be judged based on my works. Uh, Salvation is not by works. And so you kind of almost compartmentalize this teaching off to the side and kind of ignore it, or don't pay attention to it. Uh, it's not convenient. Uh, you don't understand it, maybe, or maybe you outright reject this idea that you're going to be judged based on your works. But the reality is the Scriptures teach that believers and unbelievers will be evaluated based on their works at different judgments, at different judgments, of course. The believers at the judgment seat of Christ, the outcome will be reward or lack of reward, and judgment is this judgment is significant, or unbelievers will be judged according to their works and be found lacking unable to earn their way to heaven, they will be cast into eternal judgment and condemnation. But I want to take this text seriously tonight, and I want it to sink into us, even as believers, that when 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account, a rendering of what the things we have done, whether they're good or bad, that that is a significant thing that's going to that's going to happen in our lives each and every one of us who are Christians and each and every one who are not believers are going to face God and this judgment and we'll I'll point this out through the use of numerous texts of scripture in just a moment if it's good enough for the Lord as they say it's good enough for me if he says every idle word is going to be the basis of judgment on that day, then I'll take that too. Whether I think that's you know, you know coordinate with my previous understanding of, of uh, judgment or my previous understanding of salvation by faith alone as if that means that nothing can be looked at in my life in some kind of critical way, Uh, That's certainly not true, and we need to take this text seriously on its face value. This is not for another dispensation. This is not for the Jews only. This is a general statement of fact, of truth. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Our job is not to dismiss the text. Our job is to deal with the text and understand what it means and take it very, very seriously. He says every word will be accounted for in the judgment. For the Pharisees, this is bad news, their words, their words, as we saw, were not idle commentary. Remember I said that the unpardonable sin entailed a, a, uh, a hard-heartedness, a settled viewpoint? Remember we said from Mark's Gospel, that they repeatedly, over and over again, said that Jesus cast out demons by the power of the devil. Remember? This was not just like a slip of the tongue or an offhanded comment that they made. This was their hard, malicious, settled, hateful, and murderous and unbelieving viewpoint of Jesus Christ. They... Jesus is saying, are going to give an account for these words on the day of judgment. And then Jesus kind of broadens it out. It doesn't only apply to the Pharisees, but more broadly, that for every empty or careless or worthless word that you speak, you will give an account of it before God at his throne of judgment. I'll let that sink in for a moment, and let me say it again. Every word that's empty, careless, or worthless will be a basis for you to give an account before God. To me, this strikes reverence and concern into my soul because I have put out a lot of words in my life that I wish I had not put out. I have spoken words that I should not have spoken thank the lord that christ has died for my sinful words and sinful behavior and thoughts as well and my part in sinful humanity as a descendant of adam taking care thus of my imputed sin of adam the inherited sin nature and the acts of sin whether they were behavior or speech of thoughts as it were or speech that came out of my mouth and affected other people words are used by god as a basis for judgment in fact the text goes on to say by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned why is this how can this be not because salvation is achieved by works but because works demonstrate the reality of salvation. John said, bear fruits worthy of repentance. When those fruits are seen, then it's evident that the repentance is real. Are you all hanging with me here? Salvation is not by works, but works give evidence that demonstrate the reality of salvation. Speech is one kind of work. And what the Lord is saying is that He could look at just your speech and figure out what? What does your speech tell on? Your heart, remember? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we said if you look at that speech, you can back figure, you can uh, reverse engineer you can, if you're a programmer, look at the output of the, of the thing and disassemble the code back to what it originally came from, and you can find out what's in the heart by looking at the speech. And don't give me this, no, my speech is one thing, but my heart is something else. Now, that's not going to fly, okay? That's not going to fly. The Lord says he's going to use your speech He's going to be able to tell what's going on in your heart. When the fruit of repentance is seen, it's evident that repentance is real. When the fruit of your lips is seen, then it becomes evident what is in your heart. So he can figure out what's in your heart, whether you truly believe or not. Since what is stored up in your heart comes out, If you look backwards then into that factory, you know, I mean, if you see what's coming out the end of the assembly line is like Ford F 150 pickup trucks, you kind of have an idea of what's happening inside of that factory, right? You know that there are parts being welded together and wheels being put on and paint being applied and an engine being dropped in with a transmission and, and the seats and the interior electronics and all of that stuff. You can see the result. You know what's going on inside. So if you see what comes off the end of the assembly line, picture that like your tongue, you'll figure out what's in the factory to begin with, the factory of the heart. Again, if you see cars coming off the line, you know what's going on in there. If you see out of the output of this factory bags of potato chips, you know what's in there. You know, there's potatoes in there. There's, there's uh, machines that slice potatoes and fry them and all that sort of thing. Same with speech. <coughs> Excuse me. If you see mostly trashy or mostly virtuous speech coming out, then that's a perfect indicator of what's going on inside the heart factory of the person. The Pharisees were a prime example who gave out very bad words. In fact, their words were the words of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, remember? They delivered those words like the poison of a king cobra. Maybe you look up a king cobra sometime if you haven't been familiar with them from your studies before. Very deadly, scary animals to me. The poison of asps is under their lips. This was stated back in Psalm 140 and verse number 3. David writes, Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their hearts. They continually gather together for war they sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asps is under their lips. You know, the Apostle Paul quoted that in another famous chapter in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament this time, and that we should be able to find in what book? Do you remember? Paul's indictment of humanity. It's Romans chapter number 3 verse 13. I uh, found a mistake in the notes there if you're looking at those. It says 313, but it should say Romans before it. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their mouth is connected to their feet, isn't it? Eventually their all connected. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And so words indeed can be used as a basis for God's judgment and will be a way in which God will justify or condemn. So let me ask you then the $64,000 question. How are your words? If God... If if this is true, and it is true, how is God going to evaluate your words? Words that you have used to tell the truth, words that you have used to deceive, to hide, to hold back, words that you have said that are mean words, words that you have said that are good words. How are your words? How is your mouth? Does it get out of control? Does it show a heart that does not have self-control? Does it show a heart that does not really love? Does it when you're angry, spout off, and cursing, and bitterness, and foul language? Unacceptable for Christian people, my friends, to have that stuff coming out of your mouth. I want to make that crystal clear. I learned that lesson when I was in fifth grade, actually a little bit before that, but very much so in my elementary years. And ever since then, it's bothered, speech has bothered me. And I remember uh, many a time dealing with people in the business world or in the world where I worked uh, with my hands when I was a teenager and the foul language was just something awful. And where did that come from? It comes from the heart. It comes from inside, and so it bothers me when I misuse language and should bother you as well. But if you're using that and it doesn't bother you, you have a real problem. You have a deadly serious problem, and you need to get a hold of that problem. The Bible is very clear that there's such a close connection between speech and the heart And you cannot say, well, that applies to most people, but not to me. No, it applies to you as well. You will be justified by your words or you will be condemned by your words. They are good evidence that will be useful to God and his evaluation. These words, I'm going to broaden our scope a little bit as we think for a few moments then about this uh, issue at the end of verse 36 which says but I say to you that for every idle word men may speak they will give account of it when in the day of judgment in the day of judgment people today live as if there is no day of judgment but we know that that's not sensible in our hearts we know God exists we know that he's holy we know that he's eternally powerful we know that he's divine We know that he's the creator of the universe. We know that we are his creatures. We know that we're going to be held accountable for what we do. And we know it on a number of bases. Number one, the scriptures, of course, but then inherently even without the scriptures. If you have a world in which there are people who get away with massive crimes and injustices, all they do is they just, you know, die like every other man. You have a sense that there is something unjust and unfit about the world in which we live, and your sense is correct. Because God will bring every word into judgment. He will bring people who have not faced necessarily justice in this life. He will fa- they will face justice before uh, the, uh, can say, the inception of the next life, as it's shown to them where they end up in eternal condemnation. And so we have a hope that sustains us that when there is injustice in this world, that that injustice will be righted and God will take care of it at a future time. And that time is the day of judgment. There is coming a specific day of judgment at which all of humanity's works will be evaluated. And one more key item will come under consideration during that evaluation, and that is this. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? If the answer is yes, then your works will be evaluated for reward. And if the answer to that question, that key question is no, then your works will also still be evaluated but found wanting and unable to to carry you to heaven because your righteousness was not like that of God. I want you to listen to the testimony of Scripture on this subject, and it struck me as I expanded the study of Matthew here into this area, that this is a needful thing for us. We don't, as I indicated earlier today, we don't often stop to think about this topic, I think. Uh, It can escape us. We don't really live with the sobriety of mind that says, what I'm doing is going to be held to account. My laziness, my speech, my gluttony, my lack of diligence, my lack of interest in the things of God, my selection of things that I'm doing that are not the best. Remember that prayer this morning, Paul says, that I'm praying that your love would abound and more and more knowledge and discernment, that you would approve the things that are the best. All of that stuff will come, and this is not just theoretical. This is reality. This is what is true and going to occur, and I I want that to sink in tonight, that there is a day of judgment coming, and you must be ready for that day of judgment. This is not like a a matter of hellfire and brimstone. This is a matter of you knowing the truth and facts of what is coming and dealing with that and letting that sink in so that it affects your conduct today because that's what it's intended to do. That's what it must do. So think with me about a number of texts of Scripture that deal with this subject of the day of judgment. Ecclesiastes 12.14, and I think this is my only Old Testament text, <clears throat> although I probably could have found some more. And, and by the way, if you, if you have some more in mind, i certainly add them to my catalog here, but uh, I bring these to your attention tonight for our edification about divine judgment of human works, of humanity, of human people, Ecclesiastes 12:14 For God will bring every act to judgment everything which is hidden whether good or evil you know you might have some evil hidden in that heart of yours that hasn't maybe come out as much in speech although i bet it's come out more than you think but whether it's good whether it's hidden or not hidden it's coming and uh, it will be ultimately indicated by the one's speech, I'm sure. But whether it's good or evil, God will bring that into judgment. Matthew 10:15, just a couple chapters earlier, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the what? Day of judgment. Same with Matthew 11:22 and 24, where the Lord said it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment. Verse 24, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So the Lord Jesus believed that there is coming a day of judgment. Again, if he believed this, good enough for me, I'll take it. Matthew 7, 21 and 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me, listen, in that day, You know, it's a real day, my friends. It's like this coming Wednesday. I'm not saying it's Wednesday, okay? I'm just saying it's like Wednesday. It's a real day of the week. It's a real thing. It's like, you know, when you're having a medical procedure and it's next Thursday, and Wednesday night you have to do the prep for it, and it's real, and it's coming. And you have to think, okay, after I have the procedure on Thursday, I'm going to be in the hospital overnight, and I'm going to have to, and then I'm six weeks of recovery and blah, blah, blah. It's real. This is real in that day. They say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied, cast out demons, and done many wonders, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. <clears throat> that's not good, but that's what's going to happen to those who are fake believers. Acts 17 Adds and this is just our fourth or fifth verse here, uh, Acts 17:30 30 to 31. "Truly, these times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because, why? He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. That's the capital M man, Jesus. He has given assurance of this to everyone by raising him, this man, from the dead. So he commands us to repent because there's coming a day of judgment. Why will ye die? The voice of God is calling. Why will ye die? Turn at my rebuke, the Lord is saying, and I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you, and you will be saved. God has been very kind to overlook the ignorance of, and the sin and the evil that you have done in your life up to this point. When I say overlook it, it's not that he doesn't know about it. He's been very kind to to not just, you know, zap you immediately, to be patient. God doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, and he's long-suffering, not willing that those should perish, but he gives them time to repent Come to the knowledge of the truth, 2 Peter tells us. So the delay is a delay of grace. The delay between now and your judgment is a delay of grace in which God gives you the opportunity to amend your ways by trusting in Him and turning away from sin. And we know that this is going to happen because the judge has been raised from the dead. The one who conquered death is going to be the judge, the man, Christ Jesus, Will be that judge. Then Romans 2 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's Romans chapter 2 and verse number 5. So, what kind of storehouse are you filling up with your speech? Because there's coming a day when it will come into evaluation. Romans 14, 12, So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. We kind of emphasized on this this morning that we will give an account for ourselves, not for everybody else. And so we need to focus on that, that matter, and, and, and developing, cultivating the kind of love that God wants us to have, that true biblical, agape, Christian, informed, uh, discerning, Love with moral perception, because we're going to be giving an account of ourselves to God. First Corinthians four five. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Second Corinthians five ten, we've alluded to today already. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Notice, by the way, that judgment here is not corporate judgment. Judgment is not on groups; it's on individuals. Your role as an individual, not your role as a gr- in a group. That that group think I'll call it is very common today. Uh, you know, we're we're divided up into groups by. Uh, different characteristics, people in society want to do that. But you have to recognize your judgment is you and God, as I said before, face to face with the Lord. You can't just say, well, I'm going to go kind of hide in the corner of my group and my group will be judged by God. That's not the case. Each of us will give an account of himself to the Lord. 1 Peter 4, 5, they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. That makes me wonder, if God is ready, are you ready? God's ready. In fact, I didn't put this in my notes, but James tells us the judge stands where? He's at the door. I mean, he's at the front door. Honey, there's somebody at the front door. Can you get that? Well, the Lord is ready for judgment. He could have it tonight tonight. It could be Wednesday this week. What is that, December 1st? It could be. Now, we know there's you know, prophecy, there's things that are going to unfold, but the point is, you get the idea. Second Peter 2.9, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And I'm only about halfway through these verses. Do you think the Bible believes that there's a day of judgment coming? <laughs> Second Peter 3, seven. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, the word of God, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and destruction or perdition of ungodly men. There's a day. 1 John 4.17, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Hebrews 4.13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You can't hide anything from the Lord. As clever as you may think you are, he already knows the very thoughts of your heart. He knows the words that are going to come out of your lips before they ever enter exit your tongue, your, your mouth rather. He knows all of that because He knows you. In fact, He created you. He knows all the influences that have come on your life and how you have uh, permitted them to influence yourself. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. I picked that verse there just because it reminds me, I'm to give an account for the souls that are under my care. That's a, I still don't have that all figured out by any stretch of the imagination. That's, I, it's hard to understand, uh, put into practice. But still, I'm responsible to give an account. James three one. my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. There is a judgment coming, and for some it will be more strict. Jude 6, the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved and everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So even the angels have a date on their calendar of judgment. Jude 14 and 15 says, The Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And finally, Revelation 20, verse 13. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So that's why we have to trust in Christ. We go to him so he shields us from judgment. He is the judge. Come to him now or go to him later. So speech is a very good indicator of one's heart. You may not have uh, opportunity in your life to do as much bad as your heart would if it could. Thank God for those restraints upon you that prohibit you from going off and doing all kinds of evil things. People probably speak more evil than they have done evil. Does that make sense? That's because speech is easy to come by. It's easy to speak out quickly and say some evil thing some malicious thing, some unkind, unloving thing. The heart and the mouth are only a few inches apart. There's a direct pipeline between them. Of course, when we speak of the heart, we really speak of the inner being, the control center of the person. It's really the mind as we understand it today. The heart and the mouth are that connected and overflow from the mind comes out of the mouth. So being judged by your speech maybe worse than you think because you've done more evil with your mouth than you have maybe with your body. I believe the speech here includes your thought speech, not just that which you've uttered out loud. An old saying goes something like this, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words or names, depending on the variation you know, will never hurt me. That statement has some value because it teaches us not to take what other people say too seriously. I heard that a lot as a kid. They do not know, these other people, what they're talking about. They're uh, maybe exceedingly mean in what they say, and as such, there's little value in their words. You know, the bully on the playground who says all these mean things, just ignore what he's saying. He doesn't know what he's talking about and so on and so forth. Today, however, that statement, that common old saying has come under scrutiny because it's not true that words do not hurt. Words can start wars. Words can do deep damage in relationships. Of course, words can be overanalyzed and people can become oversensitive to words, but still words can do deep damage. We can adapt a saying to highlight the meaning of our message today. The meaning of the message here is that we will come into judgment for our speech, that our speech tells on our hearts, and by that means God will be able to declare us righteous or uh, declare us wicked because he has the evidence. So we may modify the statement and say, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but if you use evil words, they will hurt you. Why? Because your words will be an evidence used in the courtroom of your future judgment. Indeed, what you say can and will be used against you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you will take these words and cause them to burn into our hearts so that we would understand the tremendous importance of how we use our mouths. Lord, this text is teaching us that some things are completely inappropriate and inexcusable for Christians to conduct themselves in their speech. I ask, Lord, that you would purify our speech, purify our lips, By so saying, I'm asking you to purify our hearts, change our approach to how we speak to other people, whether it's our spouse or children, whether it's our coworkers or people at church, whether it's people out and about in the streets, that we would use kind and loving words, truthful words, and that we would not use some excuse that we're righteously indignant and so we spout off at the mouth, teach us, Lord, that our words will bring us into judgment of either condemnation or justification. Help our speech to accurately reflect what is in our hearts and help our speech to be moved by the Spirit of God so that it will be what you want it to be. May our words not be able to be used against us, as it were, but rather for us in that day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope that's helpful to you. It's convicting again to me. And uh, for those of you that are online, thank you for joining us tonight. I hope that you <clears throat> enjoyed the message and uh, the Bible reading and the singing. I think we, uh, I forgot to turn up the uh, piano at the beginning, so maybe uh, you didn't hear anything at all, at all on the live stream, but uh, we, got it, we got it going again, so uh, hopefully that was good. Lord bless you and keep you. Have a good week. Stay well. Uh, There are lots of uh, illness going around, as we would uh, expect. Often uh, in in my pastoral experience, we've had just, uh, you know, summertime. The years go by and you see the cycles: Summertime vacations and attendance up and down, and then the winter comes and sickness and attendance is up and down, sometimes very much down uh, because of so much illness. And we thank you for your care to uh, stay away when you are not feeling well. And uh, we trust that the Lord will raise us up and we'll be able to be back together again for the first Sunday in the last month of this year in December, next, uh, next week, a week from now. We'll be here, uh, Lord willing, for prayer Wednesday night and Saturday morning as well, and uh, enjoy one another's fellowship and company just now, and then we'll be departing from here. God bless you and keep you. Amen. Good night.